Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. It is the best of times for electric vehicles. It is, well, could be better. After years of can't be done grumbling for four big automakers recently announced plans to sell electric vehicles in California. Now, you'd be forgiven for mistaking that I'm reading from an article written recently about the impending and lauded electric vehicle boom. In fact, that's a snippet from a 1996 Newsweek article about the Tour de Sol. The article continues a bit further down. Solectria, an upstart firm near Boston, will begin selling the sporty Sunrise in 1998. With an aerodynamic carbon fiber body, the Sunrise is expected to go 300 miles on a single charge. It costs just 1.5 cents per mile to run versus 6 cents of gasoline vehicles, but the sticker price is a daunting $100,000. Unless, of course, enough people decide to buy one. If they get 20,000 orders, says CEO James Warden, Selectria could sell the Sunrise for $20,000. For what it's worth, and for those math geeks out there, 20,000 in 1996 is the equivalent in purchasing power to about $36,850 US today. Ahead of his time is one of the many, many ways I've heard today's guest described. Admirers in the late 90s predicted James Warden would become the Bill Gates of electric vehicles. Yet, many of you all know him not for the Selectria Sunrise, but for their compact, transformerless single-phase inverters with the highest peak and CEC efficiencies in the solar industry. Yes, today's episode is a little bit of a departure, but trust me, it's well worth it. Thank you so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you have got, and that's your time. And if you're new here, I really do hope that you'll get a ton of value out of this episode. I want to thank you personally for giving us a chance to earn your attention. In 1998, a Tampa Bay Times article critique of a book titled Charging Ahead highlights the backstory of the rise and fall of the electric vehicle in the latter part of the 20th century. And it also highlights that while the book does an admirable job of explaining how the MIT whiz kid James Warden helped spark an EV revolution, there's a noted vacuum in the book, hardly getting to know the main character himself, James Warden, at all as the founder of Selectria Corporation. For years, I have admired James and Selectria from afar. We used their inverters in many of my earliest solar projects as an installer and developer, including the first solar on Target stores in Hawaii. They're known for both reliability and the highest quality and American-made to boot. But I've also longed to get a chance to meet and hear the story of this iconic, if little known and misunderstood, solar and electric vehicle industry pioneer. Thanks to a few well-timed introductions from former Selectria employees, I recently had the opportunity to actually fly up to Boston and meet James in person. What follows 
is my attempt to fill the vacuum left in charging ahead. This is a two-part interview in which we do cover the backstory of James' early life, his journey to MIT, discovery of solar-powered vehicles and electric mobility, entrepreneurial endeavors, and much, much more. In it, we do fill in many of the cracks that might exist for those like me who've always wondered how Selectria has defined James and his career over the last three decades. There's a lot to unpack, so thanks for pressing play. You won't be disappointed. And if you like what you hear, I hope that you'll subscribe to the show as that'll ensure that you won't miss out on our twice-weekly content very much like this. And you can always check out more than 475 additional founder stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. For now, get ready for a true deep dive, Solar Warrior, as we tune into a powerful conversation with the one and only James Warden here on Suncast. I have been looking forward to today's interview for quite some time as the Suncast Pioneers of Solar series has evolved. It's been quite some time since I had a chance to speak with a guest who has had not just pioneering moments for renewables, but for electric vehicles, for electronics in general. I've talked to many of today's guests, colleagues, former employees, who all agree that James Warden is in fact a solar and renewables and electronics, uh, an electric vehicle pioneer, someone who I'm honored to have a chance to interview. And if you have a chance to watch this, if the digital gods are kind to us and we can publish the video, there are a few artifacts here that we will be referencing. You may want to just jump over to YouTube and check those out. Without further ado, because there's so much that I'm sure we're going to want to dive into today, allow me to welcome James Warden to Suncast. Thank you, Nico. It's exciting to be doing this with you. Well, I'm honored. We are sitting in uh, a building that I'm sure we'll talk about as you have a passion for not for all things energy, including net zero energy. And it goes back uh, much further than I'm sure many of your interviews have, uh, have delved into uh, kind of what makes James Warden. For those who don't know anything about you, could you maybe set the stage of where you grew up and the nature of the family you grew up in? Was it a small family, a large family, academic, uh, blue collar? Help us understand kind of what formed the foundation for James Warden. Sure. I grew up in Arlington, Mass., uh, just outside of Boston, and a family of five. My dad was a, a lawyer. Uh, he just retired recently, mm -hmm. a probate lawyer, about as boring as you could get from, <laughs> from, from our kids' point of view. A lot of papers. And, yeah. um, and then my mother uh, was a microbiologist by training, and they actually met at, at Harvard. And uh, she was a stay-at-home mom um, with the five of us, but then went back to work after the last of us went to college because she that's what she does. And mm -hmm. uh, she went actually back to work at Harvard. Um, anyway, I'm the middle child, uh, the screwed up one in the middle, as they say. And I have two older siblings, two younger. So uh, my oldest brother, John, one year older than me, uh, Andrew, were the closest two in age. And then my sister and a little brother below me, Alex and Peter. So uh, for full house and uh, my parents uh, were very, very encouraging for us to, you know, learn about things we want to learn about, have hobbies that we mm -hmm. enjoyed um, there. You know, we had a, a you know, somewhat strict family, you know, uh, mind your manners and mm -hmm. uh, be kind to people and treat others with respect and do your studies. You know, yeah. we had, you know, high pedigree to look 
look up to and uh, and that you know went through the family and you know for me i i i didn't enjoy language and history and stuff as, mm. as much uh, as math and science that came easier to me um and it's funny because our my wife and my kids are are very different they <laughs> they uh they they excel at the the humanities and uh don't enjoy the science and math as much although they're okay at it but mm. uh but anyway so that that that's uh basic basic upbringing yeah talk to me about the first interactions you had with, I'll, I'll say broadly, machines and electronics, how you discovered what came to be a lifelong fascination with the mechanics and electronics that make up our world. So from a very young age, I'd love to tinker with little motors and batteries and, uh, you know, make things go. And something I did a whole lot of was take things apart. Mm. A lot of things from the trash or something discarded from the household but I would drag home from small appliances to large appliances. And uh, sometimes to my parents' dismay when they'd see another washing machine in the driveway and there I was taking apart outside in January and yeah. at six degrees. And I was just so excited to learn learn about things, mm-hmm. take them apart, learn how things go together. Um, and I learned as appliances, even through my time as a, as a kid, as, a, as I got a newer appliance, it was harder to take apart and, mm-hmm. and much harder to try to put back together, more intricacy as uh, you know, like automatic click together assemblies became took over from screws yeah. and snap together parts uh, that don't even show any fasteners or how do you take that apart. But all these things are gradually, you know, registering, logging in my brain as like a library of like a CAD library of, of how things are put together. And I think that might have had, you know, an important role to then manufacture products. Mm-hmm. And um, I learned my from my own thinking, but also through various people I meet, um, met through my life, uh, great people that mentored me and taught me people that were in most cases older than me about reliability and making things that are, are, are good and that mm-hmm. will work, putting that extra effort in, uh, and using that, you know, little bit better quality part that costs a little bit more, but to make the difference and, uh, don't waste any money. We, mm-hmm. you know, we grew up also as a family, to never waste, you know, my dad would yell at us if we left our ba- bedroom light on. Yeah. You know, of course, they're incandescent. There's a 60-watt light bulb burning, like two or three of them. And he said, you know, how come your light's on? You know, and, <laughs> you know, we then have that for our kids now, even though yeah, they're LEDs and they use six watts. And my and my daughter's joking with us. She texted me one day and said, I feel like my dad, I'm, I'm, I'm yelling at my roommates <laughs> to turn her lights off. And I, good, good girl, you know. It worked, you know. Yeah. But uh, you know, we're so, you know, in learning, you know, burned into your brain not to not to waste. I think that also went into both labor usage and materials resources and how things are, are built to do things efficiently, as efficiently as you can. Use the least power and use the least materials to get the job done to give a quality product. And uh, you know, learned that I would swear up and down like god i can't believe they designed this this way like i found <laughs> out why this dishwasher failed yeah. or this washing machine and it was like some you know some 30 cent part that f- destroyed this whole machine that's that's eight years old 12 years old mm-hmm. you know then the next machine is is built even worse it's almost built to fail even and it's like that doesn't make any sense <laughs> so those things burned into my into my brain and uh a guy that we, my wife and I met early in our career, the founding uh, of Selectria, actually back to the solar car days, uh, Ed Tremblay, 
was a guy who uh, worked on a lot of trucks and cars and machinery, home building, whatever. And he came and helped us, volunteered with the solar car at MIT to help truck and trailer our solar cars to events and Mm -hmm. to pick up molds that we needed to, you know, make the bodies in and whatever. And uh, he became a a great mentor. I had met him in high school when I built some of my first uh, solar cars. He helped me do things and he thought I was a little, a little crazy, like that's going to be too lightweight. (laughs) It's not, it's not going to last. It's not going to work. But he, uh, he, he really leaned into me about making things robust enough and um, making them last. He taught me how people design things so poorly. And, yeah. and so as a, as a, you know, as a teenager, maybe 13, 14, 15 years old, you know, those words meant a lot. Sure. I was like, no, I was off in my way. I wanted to make the super lightweight, super efficient yeah. thing, but he, you know, helped guide me over a little bit, a little bit more towards the center of, you know, not like a tank, but not like a feather, you know, yeah. another uh, similar person to that, like that, that I met in college, um, Eric Voller, he was a great mentor. He was a PhD candidate. We derailed his PhD for a couple extra years <laughs> and he went and built these solar cars with us. But he was a, a great proponent of, you know, putting in the effort and the quality to make something really work. Yeah. He was a, I think both of them also taught me KISS, keep, a keep simple, it simple, stupid. And mm-hmm. I kept that all the way through, all the way right up until this building. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes you have to pick something that's rather complicated or high tech yeah. because it's so important to get that efficiency, like to get to net zero, yeah. something like geothermal. Um, sure, it's more complicated than lighting a fire of, of gas or yeah. oil and making heat and then blowing the heat around. And you have to pay for it too. But then keep everything else simple and stupid as mm-hmm. you can. Um, so that's, you know, it's a lot like the solar cars. You know, this, when we built the solar cars, you couldn't buy any parts for them. You couldn't buy motors. You had to, manufacture them. You had to make it yourself. Yeah. We had to do that. But but otherwise, don't go nuts. You know, don't don't go to the nth degree on every single part of the car because right. you got to get a car built. And it's right. got to be safe and reliable. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a human being in it. It was me in, most in of the case, time. You, yeah. And uh, hurtling down the road <laughs> over the Alps or across the Australian outback with yeah. three truck road trains racing by you. So it had to hold together. Yeah. I am so glad to hear the early influences that characterize what many of us in the solar industry recognize as an undying and unwavering focus on quality that surely, as we'll discover later in the interview, companies like Yaskawa came to appreciate that in many cases was missing in the early iteration of, uh, of power electronics in the solar industry. Long before the solar industry really began to appreciate the work that you were doing, you know, in the 80s, you were thinking about ICE vehicles and electrification of transportation. I will link for those who want to just dive back into the records that are just uh, glutton for punishment of resources, as I've done, to some of the early NPR interviews you did in the 90s that echo some of the stuff you were working on in the 80s. Before we get to college and the solar car, uh, I think I read a story that said that you were racing around the sidewalks of your town in an electric go-kart. Is that accurate? Electric go-kart? Yeah. Okay. Tell me about your first attempts at electrifying vehicles. Yeah, it's, that was, you know, always something a little kid wants to do is build a go-kart, totally. right? Yeah. So, you know, when we f- first moved to what was our final family house to grow mm. up and we moved, you know, half a mile down the street to this 
big old Victorian and my dad got a got for a good deal. It was like 80 grand back then. Wow. 1977 when Star first Star Wars came out. Oh, I yeah. remember that because we saw that movie that time. <laughs> um, and, you know, the, all those influences are. It'll, they'll are play it. They'll play a recurring theme. Yeah. yeah. So the force yep. may, may be with you, but I'm not allowed to say that. <laughs> At least we weren't when we came out with the force when yep. Lucasfilm sent us a letter. But yeah, I started actually with, uh, I started with electrifying a, a, a small go-kart and, uh, that I made out of wood. And, and then, you know, I wanted something, uh, something faster, more powerful and everyone loves the sound of a gas engine, right? Mm-hmm. You know, as a little kid. So I, uh, I had, I had started mow lawns for some of the, yeah. the houses around us. And I had, a, I've, I've got an engine that a horizontal shaft engine that, that was broken and I fixed it all up. I got it on this go-kart it was a lot of fun, but the engine was smelly and stinky yeah. and noisy. And one day I was turning around to adjust something because it was starting to sputter out and my arm brushed the muffler oh, yeah. and it burned my arm. Yep. And I was I was done. I was like, that's it. This this is the most ridiculous. Thing. How could anyone put up with that thing yeah. to move a vehicle? And I had just spent several days fixing, rebuilding the engine, learning mm. about how an engine worked and and uh, I was so excited to get it, get it all running, clean it all up. And here I was really ready to drop kick this thing. Like I, I almost <laughs> threw it in the trash, although it's probably still at my parents' house. Yeah. But uh, much to my dad's dismay. It'll be in the Warden but, Museum one day. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but um, anyway, then I just really set in like, I got to get, get the electric thing going. Mm. You know, I built a whole round of just like the this, this sort of array of solar cars through yeah. the years that we built in college. I, I built like, four or five different electric go-karts and uh, more and more becoming like a car. Like one looked like a 1905 racer with the spoke yeah. wheels and mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the front hood like that. And then the seat, no way. And, you know, and it was, it was so fun. And uh, I think of a black and white picture of that somewhere, but I did use uh, starter motors. They weren't very efficient, but they gave a great kick. Mm-hmm. I ran the battery down kind of yeah. fast. Then I moved Wait, to- Wait, so you. in high school, you, you learned- the efficiency, the kick of a starter motor. Yeah. And this, that played a role later this, in the solar this, car. No, that's probably junior high okay. at that time. But yeah. then I moved to fan motors from cars, you know, the blower motors mm, that, yeah. that run and one wasn't enough. So I used two and then three. I was like, well, why not? It doesn't matter how many motors you use. Sure. So they were, they're permanent magnet, unlike the starter motor that now some are, but the early starter motors, like seventies, eighties, they had, you know, Magneto. series wound, uh-huh. the series wound uh-huh. coil with brushes and then yeah. they then they'd a coil for the stator. So very inefficient, made a lot. He didn't have to be efficient, just had to start an engine. That's right, one use. So a lot of horsepower, small. So, you know, I learned a lot about that, but then had the three fan motors, but then I learned how the bearings aren't really made to take a side load, like from a belt Mm -hmm. or a chain, or made just to run a blower. So the bearings had problems. So then I was like, you know, learning that. Mm -hmm. And uh, then in high school, then I had between probably about eighth or ninth grade, I think it was eighth grade, I went down to this event at the town hall, right. which in probably 1980, 83, 82, somewhere in there, they had like a green fest and it was like, <laughs> like, like hippies and it was, you know, Afros. It was a pretty strange event. You yeah. know, we were like a hip, a town that wasn't too hipster yet sure. at the time. Now it, now it's uh, more that way, but this was a, a, a different kind of event that wouldn't, wouldn't typically happen in a small town, but yeah. there were like, you know, recycling bins and, and composting. And <laughs> well, one little table had solar cells. They were round, mm-hmm. about four inch diameter. They were, I think they were 
like surplus from Solar Power Corp from oh, Uber yeah. Mass. That was a, a big deal back in yeah. the Jimmy Carter days, right? Solar in Power that time. They were a competitor to Arco. Yeah. A predecessor, even. Yeah, I think they're a predecessor. But I bought one solar cell, and I remember it was $10 for wow. one solar cell, you know, for surplus solar. So that maybe made a watt. It was like maybe like two amps, half a volt, one round solar cell. I mean, uh-huh. now that much area of solar makes like four or five mm-hmm, watts, you yeah. know. But I brought that home and it 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 was like the like the holy bread at, at church. Like that oh, thing yeah. just did it just lit me on fire. And I right away had it hooked up on my window to a motor and then I I hooked it up to tinfoil wrapped Lego train track so I could get the electricity to the train and I sort of running that off from the window. Like I I just thought it I just couldn't imagine like how this thing could make make things run. So and I had read about it, but yeah. to actually have it and that like I never put that wafer down like that was yeah. it and i were you I, reading popular mechanics and magazines like this to learn where were you learning because this is pre-internet mostly i like to go to the library and go up in the stacks and the like the biography section mm. and i would just i love those kind of books about edison and tesla and mm-hmm. uh, marconi and madame curie and i just ate those up and then i'd bring home a stack of those too and read more of them and edison i think i must have read like Eight or ten biographies of Edison, different biographies from different people's yeah, perspectives. Yeah, junior high, and I, in that, yeah, that yeah. time, I would say sort of fifth, sixth grade up through like ninth or tenth grade. I just sure. love those books, and some some of the popular science I send away for some plans of this or that. <laughs> or uh, we had National Geographic at at home, so I you know read those. That was the stuff I liked to yeah to take in. Fantastic. I always wonder about bright folks that are raised in, uh, you know, I now live in Durham, Duke and UNC Chapel Hill are both renowned uh, universities, not quite Ivy League. But when I see kids who are locals go to Duke, I ask myself, you know, I wonder what, how that decision was made. We're going to sort of fast forward a bit to MIT. And I'm really curious how and why you chose MIT over what I'm sure were a plethora of opportunities you could have selected. You seem like even at a young age, you were bright enough to have been able to go to Stanford or Harvard, any of the the schools, you know, Harvey Mudd, any of the engineering schools that you probably would have chosen would have accepted you, it seems. Why MIT? Well, it's interesting you, you said that because it turned out MIT is the only school I got into. Get out of town. Yeah. <laughs> um, I only applied, you know, back in those days, you didn't apply to like 20 schools like yeah. the kids do now. Yeah. I applied to RPI MIT and Harvard. Harvard, just because my both my older brothers, yeah. my dad and my mom were Harvard, so yeah. I had to apply to Harvard. I didn't necessarily think I'd get in there. But RPI, I didn't want to go there. Yeah. I pretty much only wanted to go to MIT, MIT. but I didn't get into so, RPI. We went out to RPI. My dad took me out. And what's it was RPI, a, RPI for folks that Rensselaer don't know? Rensselaer Polytechnic. Rensselaer, yeah. it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a great it's school. A world, yeah, world renowned. Yeah. yeah, like WPI. My son's going to WPI. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I went out there and... You know, I'd been to MIT just once or twice. I'd been to the science fair there, which was a, another big turning point in my life. But when I went to RPI, it just looked at the time, when, whatever our tour was or wasn't, it really boring. It yeah. looked like classrooms and books Drab. and brick buildings. And just, it was probably bad weather. It was probably cold. I mean, yeah. I was just, I was turned off of yeah. that school at that time. I Again, it's very, everything's different now. Yeah. But uh, that was not my, and hell, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't let me in. So, mm. you know, they're a loss. Um, but I think a big reason that I got into MIT was 
the solar car I built in high school and uh, Selectria one and two. And uh, these were a three wheeled commuter car. Like we, we called it the tin box. You built this in high school, in high school. And, and, uh, and even in high school is a question that I had uh, that, that I wasn't sure, you know, the name Selectria seems to have followed everything you've done. Where did the name Selectria come from? I, did, I had not realized that it came, you had built these cars in high school that carried the name Selectria. It's, it's probably the only bit of Latin from taking Latin for three years that actually became anything in my nah. life. But um, it's Sol for solar, Lec for electric, and Tria for three wheels. Wow. So Tria is the Latin word mm. for three. So that name was the name of the cars. And then when we founded the company in 89, Right at the end of college, um, my wife was still in college doing our thesis, yeah. but we called it Selectron Corporation. Right. But when we went to register it and there's incorporate already. it, there's already a Selectron <laughs> in California. They're make, making circuit boards and computers. Yeah. So we were like, oh, I guess we have to change the name. So we're like, hmm. You know, we weren't very bright. It's like, well, the, the car name's not too bad. Let's just use that use as the that company. One, yeah. So Selectria Corporation became yeah. the electric car company. And the and it it came off of being car names because yeah. we had the Selectria was the first car I entered in, in the school. science museum in high school. And that one won a first place. Yeah. The second one. Is this a local science fair or? The state it? science fair. Okay. That was held at MIT's Johnson no Athletic way. Center. Okay. And it's held there every year, I believe. And uh, actually we went to an uh science fair alumni event once and it was actually very emotional and uh, uh that i they had me talk and it was uh it was actually i almost choked up it was it was really emotional just feeling all that that it sort of that event participating in it rushing to get a car together get it mm -hmm. done getting the poster gun getting the book done you know it puts a lot together for what what life is you know yeah. like to to start and run a company, you have to do everything and yeah. you have to surround yourself with great people that yeah. do everything. And you have a sense and, of urgency. And you have, oh my God, I was my, <laughs> my parents were beside themselves, you know, <laughs> trying to help me, but not go insane and not oh, have yeah. me go insane. Cause I was like rushing up to the last minute, getting everything done and we're piling this thing in the car and it was a car. So I had <laughs> this sounds like every story down. I read about every Selectria race you ran. <laughs> right. It, yeah. For a while we, we got professional, yeah. but it took time. Yeah. It, it, the solar cars, it took time. And then with the electric cars, when uh -huh. we started racing as a company, we had a mm. couple of tough, tough races. And then we just won every time, you know, and, yeah. you know, you get into a pattern and then it's like, um, you know, it, it gets what? really exciting at that at that point when you, when you've made it, when you've, yeah. you've gotten all the way. I can, I cannot imagine now, I mean, there should be, there should be many different electric car racing series now, but maybe we'll get into that at some point. But mm -hmm. back then these races were very formative for, you know, what could have, would have sort of been the beginning of mm -hmm. major electric vehicle revolution in the nineties, the eighties leading up to the nineties that then was cut off by California killing the mandate. There's an article that I'll link to from Electric from one of your old friends, Tom Massey. Several of oh. you recognize Congressman Massey yeah. from, I think, Kentucky. Kentucky, yeah. Yeah. Kentucky, Kentucky congressman, congressman. Who also went to school with you at MIT. And he said the captain of our team was James Warden, who went on to found Selectria. His company bought Chevy Metros, took out the powertrain, resold them as EVs. He was a real EV pioneer. <laughs> wow. 
That's nice. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> yeah. He joined MIT in 1989, and he was a part of the solar car team. Can you talk about when you, like how the idea of the solar race or the solar car team at MIT became a thing? And, and my understanding is that you were the first, I'll say American, to race a solar car in Europe. Yes. Walk me through that history. Yeah, that's a, that's a really fun, I wish I could just jump right back in that seat uh, <laughs> right now. Um, it's a long story, but I'll, I'll keep a shorter yeah. piece of it. There's so many anecdotal pieces of it. Mm -hmm. But uh, coming to MIT as a excited uh, freshman to take in all this, this as they say, fire hose of learning, yeah. um, that's really what it is. And you just, you're surrounded by so many smart people. The first thing you think is, uh, I forget what's called something dilemma when you're like, I don't belong here. Like mm -hmm. everyone's way smarter than me. And yeah. I, I mean, I really believe that my wife really believed that. And uh, my wife went to her, her advisor once and said, you know, when classes were tough and whatever, talked to her and, and her advisor still our friend. Now she's retired from the admissions office. And she said, Anita, we don't make mistakes. Ooh. You're here because you're smart enough. And that was pretty neat yeah. of her to say, but that's that it felt like just this mm. huge overwhelming weight, but yet you knew somehow with friends and whatever, you're going to make it through all this. But mm. the best thing MIT had then, I don't know if they have it now, but freshman years pass fail. And that was a godsend because I took great advantage of that. I packed in as many of my humanities requirements and everything I could into that pass fail year more than even you're allowed to take um, because I wanted to have more freedom later when the classes are graded and all that. But in, in your later three years. But anyway, I came with my high school solar car and there were a couple of really neat things that, that got, got the solar car team started. The first of which was I met a guy randomly who I'm talking to, Peter Muey, that happened to work at the Edgerton lab, you know, Harold Edgerton, this flash stro uh, yeah, strobe, strobe flash guy. Yep. And he did so, he invented sonar, a whole bunch of wow. neat things related, especially related to ocean and photography. Uh, real tinkerer. This guy, Peter Muey, talked to me. I was telling him about the solar car, you know, the solar car idea he had. Like I want to, you know, found a company to build solar cars. And so everyone can have one, not in their garage, but outside their garage. So yeah. it charges up. But he right away thought, you got to meet Doc Egerton. I'm like, Doc Egerton, like the famous Doc Egerton. Like, <laughs> yeah, he, he, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to him uh, about meeting you and see if we can arrange that. And he called me up a week later and said, Doc is, is going out in Boston Harbor doing a cruise to look for some boat propeller that fell off a freight boat in like 1930 <laughs> or something. Come along. And Doc does these things. He takes 20, 30 students out and he goes on the USS Egerton, which is some, some reused uh, hundred foot long, rusty white painted boat that is like a research vessel. And um, I was like, wow, this is going to be cool. And it was like a Saturday. So we went out Boston Harbor and it's like a two hour steam out into the harbor, like a, a, quite a ways, two yeah. hours to get to where this propeller was supposed to be. And then they're going to scan the water with the sonar devices and find this propeller. Right. They never found the propeller. But on the trip <laughs> out, I right away, I got really sick. Oh, no. On the boat. Yeah. And I just disappeared. I went down the two ladders and down the bottom. I like laid down and uh, as close one, to the not moving part as possible. Yeah, yeah. Which that's what I thought that made sense. <laughs> yeah. Like get, just get away from all this. And uh, at some point, I guess Doc Edgerton 
said to Peter, oh, where did where where did that boy go? Yeah. So, oh, he went downstairs. He was feeling ill. And he said, no, no, you can't have that. He, you know, you can't. So he, went, he went down. He grabbed me by the arm and dragged me back up and said, no, no, you got to here, stand here. Put, you got to look at the horizon. Oh, yeah. And you're going to, it's going to make you feel better. And so I'm talking to him and he stood there and talked to me for 20 minutes straight wow. about what, what am I doing and how, what stuff he's working on and, you know, what I'd be interested in at, at the lab or whatever. And so we, you know, then we got into the scientific stuff, looking for this propeller, whatever we, we seen back. Two weeks later, I got a call from their office and from the Edgerton uh, lab office. And, and he's, he, the person on the phone, uh, I think it was a, a lady on the phone. She said, Dog Edgerton's wondering if you're interested in a lab space. Hmm. Like a lab space? As a like, freshman. As a freshman, undergraduate freshman. And I was like, I was like, yeah. And I'm like, you know, why would he be offering a lab space? He just knew. He knew that that was going to mean something to set this person on their way. And literally, he's, someone was sent over with some keys. I met them at this ratty old building 20. It was called, it, later it was called the Magic Incubator. Oh, wow. It was a, it was a three-story uh, military barrack style building with four wings and a trunk, real old, like asbestos tiles on the outside, uh, formica panels on the, or not formica, uh, like masonite panels. It had this, this kind of woody, earthy yeah. smell on the inside. And it had been used for radar work. It was thrown up in World War II to develop radar. Right. And Doc Egerton had a, a couple labs there. Mm -hmm. So we opened the door and the door the tag on the door is D007. No James way. Bond and my middle initial is D for Douglas. So it's like, hmm, something is something like some synchronicity. Here. Yeah. yeah. So open the key, double doors open up, and there's this 25 by 30 foot giant room packed with equipment. You could barely move in it. I had to take some of the equipment out, big strobe lights and nice wooden workbenches. And that was the beginning. I, I brought my solar car in from home. Yeah in Arlington and put it in there. I lived on, on campus at, at East campus and, uh, really near this, this building. I mean, I was like maybe a six or 10 minute walk to get to this building. Um, mostly indoors, MIT is all connected. Yeah. And if it's not above ground, it's connected right, underground. Know that. But yes, one of the few campuses, they decided that early that we're not going to, they never shut down in winter weather professors, whatever they tunnels, people have to do with the brothers tunnels. And I mean, they clear everything of course, but Anyway, that lab was an incredible piece of being able to have space to start building stuff and figuring things out. Yeah. But the thing that got the solar car team going was uh, there's a space now, but a woman by the name of Megan Smith, who went on to be, uh, she worked at early Google, and then she was the CTO of the country under Obama. Mm. I did, you, know, you don't know there's a CTO, but she was the CTO of the country, like a cabinet level position. Wow. But when she was... Uh, I think she was a year older than me, maybe two, but I had met her somewhere and I, you know, I'm always telling people about what I want to do. You know, my crazy ideas with solar cars and whatever. And she found a brochure about a solar car race that was going to happen in Switzerland called the Tour de Sol. Tour de Sol. And she said, she- This is 1987, me, right? This is, this is 1986. 86, okay. It was like- uh, February of 1986. Yeah. So she told me about this and, you know, there's no internet. So I go, go research this. So I go up to the MIT library. I'm like looking for everything I found. I found some tabloid 
newspaper called, mm. uh, I don't even remember what it was called, Freiburg or something or whatever. And I, and I start looking, looking through the microfiche. It yeah. wasn't, a, and I'm like getting all excited about this thing. And, uh, but she told me, she said, you got to do this race. This sounds like just up your alley. You got to, you got to enter your car in this race. And quickly I'm, I'm looking at it and thinking, oh, I got to do, I got to make something way more efficient and way lighter. And yeah. the race was in June and it was February. Like February. And, you know, I'm a freshman. And so I immediately start running around, like while I'm taking classes, um, figuring out how am I going to put together a car? I didn't have time to get a team together. Um, IAP, Independent Activities Period, is MIT gives January off, which is a great time. We used every other year after that. All the kids have the time off. So you can, like, if you want to learn pottery or or take something like a class that's not a class, it's no credit. It's just an independent period. Do anything you want. You can go and you can go down and sit on the beach in Florida if you want. doesn't matter what you yeah. want to go f- travel. But most kids do interesting things uh you might do a habitat for humanity you might do some kind of a club like the solar car team yep. but in that time i had to just get a car together i had to design it build it fabricate it solar cells motors i mean i i had to figure everything out and yeah. so what i what ended up doing was as i kind of bumped around like a like a molecule like bouncing all over the place i would this person would say, oh, you got to take talk to that person. This guy, Crispin Miller in the biomechanics lab, he, he used to build human-powered vehicles. And, and then there's this guy, Eric Voller, who used to race them at Northeastern. And he used to restore cars in Australia. And he's a semi-professional basketball player. You can't miss him. He's like seven feet tall. And he's, he's upstairs on the fourth floor in the design department. And, um, and before that, I'd met in that barracks building, I'd met this crazy, super genius uh, bioelectrical guy called Gil Pratt, who... He had probes going into frogs' brains that were like opened up. The oh, head was opened yeah. up and there were probes going in the brain and they're all in this refrigerator and these wires were coming out connected to oscilloscopes. And he was like studying the brain waves inside these frogs. Yeah. So I'd met that guy. He was interested in what, what I was doing with the solar cars. Um, and some of all the, you know, these people all became great mentors and, uh, and teachers for me and all the, the team members because they were, most of these guys are PhD track guys that we slowed down their PhD as we <laughs> derailed them to build solar cars for two or three years. Amazing. But um, anyway, that in meeting these different people and learning about aerodynamics, learning about how to build yeah. lightweight structures and, you know, where to do, you know, do these things. We built this car called Selectria 3, yeah. which was, it's, it's in my barn up at the house. Really scary looking if you, <laughs> nothing looking like this. There's, it's more, it's designed more like a human powered vehicle. Have you ever mm-hmm. seen the human powered, like one and two seat, yeah. uh, land speed record car vehicles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're very different looking than this. They have to be bigger because you have to build a pedal and, right. and get hot and sweat and all that. Cause you're the only power source, but that was a great, that guy, Crispin Miller, he was a great resource. He sent me in a bunch of different directions. Right. And, uh, this, this other guy, Eric Voller, he, he helped right away. I started talking to him about this design and he's looking at it and thinking about it and, I want to do everything with aluminum because it was lightweight, like the frame. So he couldn't get time in a mechanical engineering shop, but we found one in the material science shop and chemistry all the way to the other end of the infinite corridor. He had to walk all the <laughs> way down there, you know, the quarter mile long corridor. But uh, he's teaching me how to heal the art, well, aluminum. And at yeah. some point he, he said, oh, this, you know, you need to, you need to survive in this car. We need to get this done. I, I better just finish it up. And so yeah. he, he welded the whole thing. <laughs> um, I never was very good at, at heliart welding is tough 
but uh i you know still have that frame and that that car back Amazing. back at home and it it survived it it didn't kill me it the brakes the brakes faded once down a long hill in switzerland yeah and i i was sure i was gonna die but it 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 went through an intersection light was blood red i was going through this cars beeping honk i'm just swooping through the cars like i made up some good time there but <laughs> but so like tria one and two were high school yeah so like tria three was the first tour de soul yeah tour de soul was this the, is the second tour de soul and this is the second tour de soul for those who are listening to the podcast, we're pointing to a solar powered, very, very sexy looking. It's exactly what you will remember from any documentary you've seen of the solar car race in Australia. That was this. That was this team. That was you. I remember very early in my life, uh, I was born in 79, watching your team race in Australia. Wow. Yeah. It's really interesting to think about like, the profound impact the work you have can have on others that you'll never meet. And now through mediums like podcast and YouTube, even more people you'll never meet, right? The, the profundity of the impact that Eric Voller has on, you know, propelling your work to the level where you could create a corporation around it, right? Uh, and not just him. How'd you do in that first tour de soul? I kind of finished. Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, it was a, uh... It was very tough. It yeah. was the whole thing was one gigantic learning experience while trying to finish classes the first year of MIT. I mean, it was <laughs> it was impossible cubed. Um, and I remember the as I was about ready to try to figure out how I was going to get and make the flight in Swiss here and get the car and yeah. the crates and make. Uh, my uh, my mother was worried, mm. and she was you know worried about my safety, worried about me not hurting myself or, or worse. And she said, we need to call your professor, Woody Flowers. He unfortunately passed away recently, Man. but uh, he was like the head, one of the head professors in the design department on the fourth floor that I had mentioned. Yeah. And we called him up on, on a Sunday and said, Woody, my mother said, James has taken this car and she'd never talked or interfered with anything I yeah. did on with, with teachers like that at college or whatever. But he said, uh, okay, here's what we're going to do. James, bring the car over to my house in Weston, Mass, and I'm going to look over the car. Yeah. And give it so, a design review. Yeah. So, you know, literally this car had. <laughs> now, been, is this the first time an, an, another adult has actually given a once over on this project of yours? Well, Eric Voller and, and the other, those other guys, had, mm. they had helped but me all along PhD to build students. it. You yeah. all are effectively young, early 20s, late teens, yeah. children, still trying to figure things <laughs> out. But no, like real, like your mom was saying, no, like real credentialed adult had really looked at this thing. Well, the. I'm, I'm making conjectures here, yeah. so feel well, free to. The, <laughs> well, like Eric Voller was a little bit older and he Got had it. a lot of experience restoring cars and right. building cars, right, building right. human power vehicles. That other guy, Crispin Miller had and uh so they were they were influencing yeah. for sure the design i was trying to push it all the way to being very lightweight very efficient yeah. and, and uh you know eric especially was trying to pull me a little bit more toward the center of something that would be safe enough and we you know we settled there mm. but i we got to woody's house we unloaded the car he said james i don't care about one other thing but i want you to i want you to drive the car fast as you can across my driveway and, and, and put the brakes on. I want to see the, I don't care if you can go, right. I want to make sure you can stop. Yeah. And, uh, so he looked at the car, he kind of tested the suspension, had a really weird 
thing. I had these yeah. things that you go like this to steer it. It was, yep. it was a very, it was it a very different the, design. Yeah, it twisted, the, twisted, yep. moved the axle like that. It was quite strange. Um, maybe too much riding a wagon when I was a kid was right. inter- inter- interfacing that <laughs> A little boxcar. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I tested it. I slammed the brakes on. They worked great. And then he said to me, he was, he's thinking, I think Woody was thinking, shoot, the brakes are going to work pretty well. What am I going to tell him? So he told me, he started the speech. It was like, well, James, you know, you're a winner if you go or you don't go. And uh-huh. I'm like, Woody. So then I'm. How am I, first of all, how am I a winner if I don't go? I built this car and I'm not going to go the race it's made for. But yes, as you were intimating, don't go or do go. Aha, that means I can go. <laughs> it's like, so it's I was like, like a Steve Urkel moment. You're saying there's a chance. Yeah. So, you know, I'm sure Woody knew that he was. Leaving the door. He was taking a, taking a chance there. Mm. Um, but he knew this was my passion. He wanted mm. to see the car, see that it, that it did its thing. And, and it did. And I mean, it. Who, who paid for all this? I had to run around and get, you know, I had a little bit of money. Um, another whole story off the side we won't go into, but my brother and I did mowed lawns in the summer and yeah. actually built quite an empire. Yeah, you discussed a little you know, bit about it earlier. And yeah. we'll talk maybe a little if we have some time about you and yeah. Andrew and the, and the entrepreneurial spirit. In and through getting this thing designed and built and getting things together and how am I going to get to Switzerland, I was bouncing around finding sponsors. I mean, I needed a helmet. I mean, <laughs> I needed a real honest to goodness helmet that would save my life if I rolled right. the car and, you know, helmets aren't cheap and, you know, you didn't want some beat up old thing. And so I went to a motorsport shop and they sponsored me and they wow. gave me some parts and some motorcycle parts and, and, and a helmet and whatever to got their name, Arlington Motorsports. I remember it to this day. And, uh, you know, a sheet metal shop, uh, did a whole bunch of, they had given me parts for my Selectria two. And they helped make some parts for the Sector 3 mm-hmm. race car and on into these other cars. And a small, remember there were travel agencies back in the day? One yeah. set it up for me to get Swiss Air sponsorship. They weren't going to, they Swiss couldn't Air. give me money, but Swiss Air, they sponsored me bringing the car over and my ticket. And then Myrak Chevrolet, they came up with 500 bucks cash. Cash is, cash is king because yeah. you need to buy so many little pieces yeah. that you're not going to get everyone to sponsor you. So well, how interesting Chevrolet that early in yeah, your career. Chevrolet, <laughs> they ended up, they ended up selling forces yeah, uh, of course. many years later yeah. as, as partners helped us get going with the E10 mm-hmm. pickup truck. They gave us an S10 pickup truck to make our prototype. I mean, these, these relationships just went of on course. and on, which yeah. is really fun. But yeah, that, uh. That was another important piece. And was it a shoestring? I mean, it wasn't even a shoestring. It was a thread of a budget. I mean, it was- Can I ask you a question though? Even on that thread of a budget, you don't seem to me like an implicitly like introverted person. However, the archetype that you inhabit is very introverted. Was it ever a problem for you to go and ask for help, ask for resources? It's funny you say that because, yeah, I'm, I think of myself as kind of a quiet, reserved nerd in many ways, especially as a kid- like I would be tinkering with a motor at my desk at, yeah. at the school and the, and the teacher would say, James, and everyone look at me and giggle. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't care that they giggled, you know, <laughs> I was learning about this little motor because yeah. we're in English class, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, like eighth grade or something. But at the same time, when it came time to talk about ideas and mm. what I want to do and learning about what something else is doing, I would just light up and yeah. I would. So, you know, when I went into that travel agent, I knew what I needed. I needed to get my butt. And this car to Switzerland, how is it going to do that? And I, and uh, well, we rep Swiss Air and let me talk to them. And they called them and said, well, there's this race in Switzerland, this American kid, 
here in Boston wants to go to the race. Can you guys do anything? And for some reason, they talked to the yeah. right person at the right time when Swiss Air was profitable and alive, and they, and they sponsored it. Hey, solar project owners and developers, are infrequent field checks in your operations and maintenance plan and oversight? Do you need proper insight? Well, let data drive your maintenance. Our friends over at 60 Hertz are in the cloud so that you spend less time on the ground, and their app is a snap. 60 Hertz in your pocket will help bring solar to the socket. You can learn more about how 60 Hertz can help your operations and maintenance plan at mysuncast.com forward slash 60HERTZ. That's 60 Hertz. Have you been curious about utility scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. I don't know that you have an answer for this, and I wasn't sure how it'd work in even an allusion to this. But as you're talking, uh, I remembered something I read recently that I'm going to circle back around here to. Many, I think, will be listening to your story and thinking about hmm, archetypes who have gone on to build important things who on the surface might appear to be uh, introverted nerds who actually Went, you know, uh, were able to go out and, and marshal resources and build mega corporations. You have been uh, at one point or other referred to as the Bill Gates of electric vehicles. I don't <laughs> know if you've, you've, you've clearly heard that before. Everything as an entrepreneur comes down to timing, resources, team. As the, we'll say, Bill Gates of electric vehicles, the analogy breaks down because, of course, Selectria Corporation didn't turn out to be Tesla or uh, or Nikola or Rivian or or the Nissan Leaf or, or or those right you know what I'd like to get into a bit is the team we could probably spend another two hours just talking about Solitria three the solar race team how wonderful that team was at a certain point you met Anita and you guys def- developed and formed Solitria Corporation where does the analogy for the Bill Gates of electric vehicles begin to break down because ultimately uh, it's a, I think it comes down to timing, but I'd like to hear your thoughts around being a visionary, the the requisite ecosystem necessary to lift the vision out of the ground. Yeah. I, did. I mean, that's a great point. You point out about a team and all the pieces that all the places that how, uh, how uh, a team comes from. One other example of, of team coming from the solar cars, um, mm-hmm was uh, all the interesting places, uh, you know, a team gets put together, luck, skill, uh, mm-hmm. all different pieces, the stars aligning. But one example of from the solo car team was a lady by the name of uh, Catherine Anderson, yeah. who, um, you know, Megan Smith, we talked about before, who told me about the race of those batteries. Yep. Uh, always batteries. Always. Uh, they're always a problem. They're still a problem. <laughs> our, but, light, uh, our hair light just went out. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> Megan Smith. Uh, Me- Megan Smith had introduced me to the solar cars and she ended up coming on the team in 87 to do the Australian race, you know, another basically a year later. But another important woman on the team was Kathy Anderson, mm-hmm. who 
interesting story. She was a, a senior in high school when I was a freshman at MIT. Yeah. And she was working in a bike shop for a, an odd job, you know, after school or weekends, whatever, to make some money. And she loved bicycles. She raced bicycles, mm. but she also liked to build them and work on them. And I walk into Arlington Bicycle Corner in with my first solar car, uh, crazy work. And I'm talking to the owner who came up to the counter about, I'm trying to build special wheels that have moped hubs yeah. and a BMX trick bike, heavy duty aluminum rim. And like, I need, I need some help to figure out how to do this. And he's thinking, oh, Jesus, you can't put that together with that. And Kathy Anderson was a you know, senior in high school. She's working on bikes in the back. And uh, she comes up to the counter and says, I can build those for you. I love it. And it's like, wow. Like, I said, I talked to her, for, I was showing her the parts. She took the parts. <laughs> she literally took the parts from my hands at the counter and said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll build the wheels for you. And I was like, and I'm standing there, I'm like, what do I pay? And what, you know, whatever. And, and so I came back a week later and these beautiful wheels were built and they're like red, red rims, like anodized aluminum rims right. and this moped hub in the middle, um, different moped hub than this one, but it's, uh, it's up back yeah. at the barn. And when she joined the team in, uh, went right when she got to school as a freshman, now, now I'm a, a sophomore mm-hmm. and basically through the summer after coming back and crashing from no sleep for seven days in a row and from, from Switzerland and recovering from that, I started to plan, like, what do we do next? We go go back. We got to win that race. We got, uh-huh. and this was the car, the 1987 car. Yeah. And we had, you know, literally nine months to build it. Um, so as when we, as I start sophomore year and she's a freshman, I put ads up, sticking ads up about, you know, Recruiting learning about now. the solar car team. This is your and, first recruitment. Yeah. Effort. Yeah. As a, right. I never thought of it that way, but, um, <laughs> We were going to have like an introductory class about what is a solar car and, you know, how does it work? And so I had to put together, you know, then what you did is you had uh, those uh, flimsies. Yeah, of course. The, the clear things. Yeah, the overhead. You, yeah. yeah. And you'd overhead run projector. it through Xerox machine and you could you could put the black on the clear yep. so it will go in the overhead. So I made like whole sets of those, like talk about the whole thing with some pictures from the race and yep. diagrams of how the cars work, how the first car worked, like some... S- early sketches of how this, the next card, you know, cause I, you know, I learned a lot from over there, seeing other people's cars, the competitors that, that did really well. Did you take photos, video when you were there to bring back sort of as a Not, game, I didn't have video, film. but I, but I brought my, my <laughs> point and shoot. My, no, it was a, it was a real uh, SLR 35 oh, yeah. millimeter, okay. you know, all manual then. Um, I film forget camera. the brand Canon. I think yeah. it was a used Canon, but I took a few rolls and then there's pictures around from sure, other people, yeah. whatever. Again, it's tough. No internet, no YouTube, nothing. Yeah. You know. I mean, I, so. I, would, I would welcome listeners and viewers to just put yourself in, in the 80s if, if that is possible for you, where you don't have really any of the resources that we would rely on today as college students, as adults, uh, and the resourcefulness required to make this car a reality. You know, it, 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 it boggles the mind. It, like I can't, I can't really even imagine it now. Like, because first thing you do when you want to learn something is you go on the web and you go on yeah, YouTube and yeah. you learn and podcast, you learn all about things yeah. and hear right from people's mouths. And you couldn't do that uh, then. So it was about getting as many great people mm. around a project that, because then they have their experiences and their knowledge. And like Kathy mm. with the with the bike wheels and the whole bike experience, the bike frames and bike mechanics and all that. So bringing that in and. Uh, and there's that, a certain amount of serendipity to it, uh, at least back then. Today, we have the advantage and folks don't take, they don't take advantage. 
of the opportunity we have today to get world-class people around the project. But back then, part of the, that I observed the serendipity you benefit from was being in Boston, being around an ecosystem of brilliant minds. But you had to, as I mentioned before, you had to be resourceful and go out and ask. You had to be able to say, I need X, Y, Z. And every entrepreneur has that experience as they're trying to build not just a product and a vision, but a team to shepherd that vision to reality because you can't do it alone. You did it alone, almost virtually alone the first year and it nearly killed you. You did it with a team several more years and it nearly killed you. (laughs) But how did this school project turn into a company? Well, actually, it, it's, uh, it's pretty exciting how the, because we had to craft our own drive system, mm-hmm. the motor, the, the electronics, the motor controller, the DC-DC to make 12 volts, yep. the max power trackers, yep. um, the, that uh, PhD, one of the PhD students named Gil Pratt helped, and he designed almost all those electronics. And Eric Voller and I wound by hand the first motor out yeah. of an industrial permanent magnet three-phase motor oh. way back then. Um, you know, my first cars were all brushed DC. Yeah. And Selector 3 was brushed DC. It was actually an aircraft, a high-speed aircraft motor, very, very energy-dense. Not a starter motor. It was a, a high-speed aircraft, uh, it was a accessory motor. Okay. Whining, whining, Who nasty Who decided thing. that that was the right motor? I decided it for weight because aircraft stuff has an amazing gotcha. weight energy density, not necessarily the most efficient. It may have had an efficiency of like 84, 85%. Mm-hmm. It wasn't very good, but it was super light. It was like a, a eight horsepower motor and it was only about this big, you know, weighed about 10 pounds. Um, I can show you it up at the barn, but it's just right. crazy. And I, you know, weight was more important than anything. I understood efficiency, but I knew that weight was so important to, to move a car over a mountain. You know, I mean, we're talking Switzerland here. And uh, every pound you put add to these tires, even yeah. though they're 100 PSI, um, these types of tires, I don't think they use these anymore in solar car racing, but these are BMX trick bike tires. Mm. So every pound on it is going to slow you down. And then mm-hmm. you're, you know, you're not going to get there as fast. You're going to use more of your battery. Yeah. You only have the sun. You, yeah. These cars never plug in. They yeah. only use the sun. So I was probably too focused on weight because efficiency is more important. It turned mm-hmm. out that my thesis for uh, mechanical engineering as a senior was a land speed record solar car. And I went through optimizations of things that detailed as exactly what should the wire size be to carry, uh, wow. what amount of current, how many feet, what should the size of the wire should be. And it's surprising that the wire should be really big, way bigger than you ever imagined. Oh, to like deliver to, efficiency. To carry, yeah. yeah, to carry 20 amps, the wire's like six gauge. And you're like, why would you ever use a heavy? Well, with a land speed car, you're not accelerating, you're not braking, you're not going up or downhill. And it's a nerd experiment. You're going on a flat, perfectly flat ground. As far as it takes to get to the speed you need. What does it take to get the most speed out of a fixed amount of solar? You can't make any more power mm. than the best solar cell. And you and the design of the car was basically like like a, uh, we called it Galaxy. Yeah. It was my, my senior car thesis. I built the car, but I never did land and speed record mm-hmm. attempt. Um, it, it was basically like, like a a very aerodynamic wing section with nothing wow. else. There were three wheels sticking out the bottom of it. And this little, um, I have a poster of it. I have to show you. <laughs> it's uh, crazy. And we called it the galaxy because the shape of it looking on was like tapered at the ends. And it came up like a okay. ball in the middle where the driver was. Sure. And the real car ended up being a little more boxy and had a bubble for the driver. Yeah. Like a little something to see from. lighter bubble that mm. was all the way around you. Not like this fuselage where it's clear in the front. Yeah. But anyway, 
anyway, for the efficiency, and my point there was we're getting back to how it started a company. So the three-phase motor, permanent magnet, brushless, that mm. came um, after actually after 87. We did brush DC permanent magnet. This had three motors for the tortoiseol yeah. and then ended up with one motor for the Cross Australia race. Cross Australia is much more like a land speed record because it's flat. You're driving all day. I don't like that kind of racing as much as the Tour de Sol racing, which was really fun. From one city to another, drive as fast as you can, yeah. obeying the rules of the road officially. Right. Officially, um, And then you'd get to the end city for that day and you do extra laps. It might be three to five miles or all set on a course. And as many as you can do by the time the time ends, and that goes into your score. Oh, so wow. you've, so it's a different kind of a race. There's, a, there's a quite a bit of strategy because you have to plan how fast do I go here and then how many laps do I do with yeah. the time I have? If you don't do enough and the time ends and you still have lots of power, okay, you have more power for tomorrow, but you might have missed out. So you got to think about the next day and the rest of the race yeah. and what can I do this day and whether you want a podium this day and do badly next day or whether mm. you want to get it third two days in a row, but then maybe you have a chance of, of getting first in the end. And a lot of so strategy. It, I could see yeah. how MIT would be very in, in, in favor of well, the, a team. Honestly, in my time, in all the races that I was the captain, we never had time to think about strategy at all. No. It, we were just racing to get the car built. And, we, and our next car, next car, next car, we had so many new things in it that so many advances that creating. we were working on getting those built and get it to the bloody yeah. racing time, get the team over there, get people fed. I mean, it's, it's an operation. Yeah. And uh, I, I think of that also in companies, mm -hmm. like is to relate this. We have to go back to the story of where oh, the company started, but I will. to skip, you will, but I'm like, uh, I'll like, bring oh, you back. You'll bring me back. Someone has, someone part, else has been that. Part one is how Selectria came to be. So we can, we're still there. So as we, as we think about a business, it's like the solar industry moves has been moving so fast mm. with something like on average 30%, more than 30% average growth almost every year. There's very few years mm -hmm. where it didn't grow double digits and the average is always 30%. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it is right now year to year with the pandemic and everything, but with that crazy growth, there's so much angst and change and, and one-upping the next mm -hmm. guy. You got to, you got to be better. You got to be cheaper, faster, more reliable. Uh, better. You got to have more features. You got to listen to the customer. So I think Andrew is of similar mind to me, which is you have to move so fast. You have to obsolete yourself for mm -hmm. even thinking who cares about the competition. You have to just, yeah. you've just moved so fast, but that brings out a big problem. You can't develop a product and, and refine a product and make the product have reliability all while moving too fast. Yeah. So it's a, it's a real challenge yeah. and that balance is is where the key thing is and you know do do i say you know was everything we ever did from this time to electric cars to solar inverters the nth degree reliable it could be absolutely not no. i mean i i fret i can remember many stories that were man we should have spent an extra extra year in that yeah you spent an extra year you, you lost the race you don't get, you, that's the, right then Enphase came out with the next model and you know so just like in the racing days, in the in the corporate days, the the issue became how do you take the snapshot of today with we're talking to customers, they're saying what they don't like about this, about the Xantrex with you get three pallets, you have to build a commercial inverter mm. from three pallets of stuff. Yeah. And you build your inverter. We're like, well, why don't we just 
put all that stuff together and ship it on one pallet. That doesn't yeah. sound too hard. Yeah. And the customers, we started drawing sketches of it and the customers were like super excited about this. I said, yeah, when, when can we buy that? It's like, well, we have to design it. And, but we raced quickly and we got that out. We had this single piece inverter. There was literally <laughs> nothing to do but hook solar up here and hook the AC up here. And no one could believe it. Was I mean, the Solectria inverter the first single piece commercial inverter? Yeah. In, in 2004, three, four, we came out with a residential inverter and we came out with a commercial inverter. Mm -hmm. The commercial inverter was 10 and 13 kilowatt. We mm -hmm. were number 13. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that, that's just what we could make out of the, the electronics yeah. core that came out of a car. Yeah. Um, that's, this is that whole story as Scott Bowden says, uh, EV to PV. And that's now right. he's wondering, are we going to go from EV to PV back to EV? Yeah. It's like, well, we might just do that. Mm. But, uh, as long as it isn't BE building energy. <laughs> One of the things that always fascinated me and that I've always wanted to better understand is how and why an inverter company spun out of an electric vehicle company. When you and I first met, I asked, what happened to Selectria Corporation? Could you give me the, the maybe the three to five minute version? It's a, th there's an entire episode that is dedicated, uh, you know, that needs to happen for someone on Selectria and why it wasn't the Tesla of our time. but you and Anita co-founded Selectria Corporation uh, as recent grad, and she was in her, her senior year of college with a lot of the, the team and the resources from the original solar car team. Uh, one of the original questions I have is the work that Pratt and Voller and everyone did seems to me as grad students in MIT would be IP of MIT. How did that IP and team end up being a private corporation was there well, well that's that's a very good question actually a very smart one there were times that you know mit did did great things letting this team happen the design department harold gregerton i mean never could forget uh any of those great mm. treasures that made this all happen i mean what an amazing place to let let that flourish yeah. i mean it's dangerous i mean yeah. kids could have been hurt died killed hurt other people yeah um but you know they they trusted in that there are enough people that cared or some, some older adults in the room, um, Gil Pratt and Eric Fowler and uh, the professors were keeping an eye, but from a distance, they didn't, they didn't want to mm. be too close to it. It was also, you know, they were doing all their things, teaching all their classes. They have all their projects and the yeah. solar car team was this whole own thing. The professor, uh, Woody Flowers, let me set it up as a course and I gave grades. I had to submit grades every term to Woody that then would come as back. As an undergrad. As an undergrad. So everyone got an A if they showed up and worked in the car. Um, and that would, people loved it. It was good for GPA Amazing. too. But the but the design department realized that they're a mechanical engineering design department, and this you know no one as like you said no one had built solar cars ever yeah. before. And here's this kind of cutting edge thing. But all the undergraduate students got to work on this and design it and build yeah. it. Cr the craftsmanship we learned. Yeah. It's a living lab, and we're going over and racing our product. I mean, thinking about it, and it's fun because my wife and I still love to support the MIT car yeah. team today and actually they just won mm, um, no way and it, uh, mostly female team like two-thirds so female cool. team female uh uh leaders uh unbelievable story that we we yeah. uh we love going down there and spending time with them and telling the, the old stories they love hearing that they tell us about their their new things so we a, get all charged up and then we go to dinner with them usually or or spend what a some legacy that egerton left huh yeah now it's called the edgerton center no and way. the edgerton center is it's not near the main campus. It's over at the MIT Museum, and they have uh, the solar car team. 
the Formula SAE electric race car yeah. team, underwater robot team, and a battle bot team, and a rocket team. And they all share a lab. That's all the tools and equipment are shared. So it's mm. so a lesser expense. Yeah. And we and we have a small endowment that we we help and and the the proceeds from that endowment uh, goes to the lab, but a special part goes to the solar car team. And, and you called it the magic something? Well, the the building that is now knocked down and it's now, you talked about Gates, the Bill of yeah. Melinda Gates building, the big is on that new side. building is on the ground that Get that one stood. Yeah. What was it called? The magic what? It was building 20 mm. and it was called the magic incubator. Got it. The magic and, uh, incubator. And there's a, there's a whole, there was a memorial for the building and we all went there and they had all kinds of stories shared. And I had no so idea. What yeah. A, so. What a re- that's a really odd uh, synchronicity there. The, the Bill and Melinda Gates building is on right that there. Side. Yeah. It's so, uh, and the, and the state of center, I think it's called the state of center, but it's most of it is Bill and Melinda yeah. Gates, but Ray State was another sure. magnate name. I'll, if you have to remind me, but I'll definitely send you a photo of the original magic I'd incubator building, yeah. uh, but the it magic had, incubator. Yeah. And it I had just that. like on the second floor, there were language labs. There were, there were piano labs. Mm. Like I went up and played the piano. So the door was left open. I'd go in there and really nice upright pianos, yeah. beautiful sound. And then, there's this guy building, you know, you're taking frogs' brains apart. <laughs> and then there was a machine shop, great machine shop. There lots of good metal in there when you could borrow a piece from the machinist. Um, just a, a huge variety of different things. All the misfits and things that didn't fit in yeah. campus that overflows or anytime a professor or department could grab a little bit of space wherever they could. Yeah. And it's right in campus. It wasn't way off. You know, the MIT owns a lot of buildings sure. further off at the edge of campus, but this is in, this is in the main heart of campus. Yeah. So it was, it was a really fun place. You asked about how the MIT solar car work morphed into a company and mm. the, and the issue of IP and, and whatnot. And that's a, that's a good issue. Well, one, one fun story was that when I went once with a purchase order, did the, the, the a silver zinc battery company, Whitt- Whitaker Yardney that made the batteries for the lunar Land Rover oh, wow. um, in the, in the sixties, we were, going to get a silver zinc battery for one of our mm-hmm. high performance race cars for, I don't know if it was the Australian event or the Swiss event, but they needed a purchase order from the college, uh, not just some personal check or something at that time. Yeah. So I went with a bunch of money to <laughs> the bursar's office, MIT, and I handed them a check and said, oh, we need a, we need a purchase order cut to this company, Whitaker Yardney for like $17,000 and whatever. And uh, and they, they, the ladies talked to me and said, oh, and we'll, we'll need, we'll need 40% extra for overhead. I'm like, we, we don't have any money for that. And so we had to talk with the mechanical engineer design department, whatever we got it, we got that scrubbed, but that was my first lesson on kind of like overhead and like finances and MIT. And it's like, geez, we don't want MIT, you know, taking over this thing. And, right. but these grad students, and undergrads were working on this as a as a class, an extracurricular learning project. It wasn't a funded project by MIT. There was yeah. um, other than the lab space and and the the whole aura of MIT. It wasn't it wasn't an MIT uh, financially funded project. It was by Theref- blood, sweat, it wasn't. And tears. And- therefore, it wasn't something that MIT could ethically make claim on the IP. I mean, in theory, maybe they could have, but the IP was you know. Gil Pratt's electronics designs, you know, Eric, Eric Fowler's work with me uh-huh. on the mechanical designs. We basically took that stuff and redesigned it and productized it um, with both of their help. And we 
we started selling what no one else could buy. Every other college team it started becoming high school teams or corporate teams and individuals, groups of individuals who started building solar cars. How were they finding out about this? How were they discovering that you got what you guys were doing? Was it getting published? Well, yeah, absolutely. In magazines, a lot of TV spots, you know, so magazines, newspapers and TV spots, those three. So we raced in 86. Myself alone didn't get a lot of publicity. That was more Cambridge, Arlington ran yeah. like three articles in Arlington Advocate. Did, did people so. find you or did you go out and seek publicity? Um, not, not until once we started the company, we mm, never, okay. in the solar cars, we never see no, it, it, it was always all over us and we lapped yeah. it up. We loved mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And you know, 87 going to the Swiss tour de Sol, then going to the Australian race, then doing the corporate image ad. Now, now the 88 Olympics came and you're seeing this 30 second ad for this thing over and over again. We actually play it on that screen right there yeah. in the, in the, in the uh, energy wing here yeah. in, in the building so that people see this car in action on that screen, which is kind of fun. Amazing. Um, but then this car was retired. It had a it had a, a one year life, not even a year, and that was it. And it went to the Museum of Science and got displayed for the next seventeen years in wow. the Boston Museum of Science. But then we had Selectra Five, the next car, the four A, B, and C, yeah. then five, and that car was really a slick car. Yeah, um, it was a whole bunch lighter. It was even more streamlined. It, Where is that car? That car's in, in my barn. It's oh, wow. pretty disheveled and beat up. It had mm-hmm. a long life. MIT, after we left, Tom Massey and and some others, Goro Tamai, uh, Peter Rexer, they raced the car, Selectra 5 and the Galaxy in nice. GM Sun Race. And then they went on to build more cars and the team evolved and evolved. Yeah. I mean, now it's 30 mm-hmm. years later and, and now they're winners. a whole new team and now they're winning again, which is really, <laughs> really touches our heart. Yeah. But anyway, so we started selling those parts- and developing them and refining them better and better, making them more reliable. It was, you could buy our brushless motor, which didn't look like the one we built here. It was, we we used more more off the shelf parts, but we had our special custom windings in it. That was yeah. the magic part of it. And a sensor that we'd pick up uh, was a custom sensor that would send the signal to the Tune controller mm-hmm. to fire it exactly right. And it was a pretty simple controller. It was what's called six step. It wasn't a sine wave. So it was kind of chunky, but turned out to be quite efficient because even though it was a bit of a chunky, there was literally like a rumble when you'd start yeah. it. It was, there was no uh, switching loss because it was just on, off. Yeah. And it was just like, so the sine waves were like these chunky, yeah. chunky ones, but it, it worked great. And uh, it, it was the number one drive system that most teams had for about four years. Wow. And then, then another company came out with a, a wheel motor, um, something like that. Yeah called NGM or MGM that they first used our controller to run their <laughs> motor. And we're at the beginning, then they made their own controller, but we decided we didn't want to go into wheel motors at the time because yeah. it, it didn't seem like a cost-effective practical thing that was going to be going out in the real market. Cause our goal was to make cars for people to drive yeah. commute in every day. Mm-hmm. That was our goal at the time when we founded the company, the solar car parts were just a means to an end to yeah. sell the parts, get them out there. And uh, we immediately started to design our own cars. I guess that transitions into the next the next piece of this, though. Uh, that was year what nineteen eighty nine. No, I graduated in eighty nine. The company was founded in eighty nine. Yes. Okay. We had started building Lightspeed, which is that red car that I wish I could show you right now. No, oh yeah, it's up on the board. It's up on the board. So with going doors. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a little bit of Marty McFly. Uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> Back to the Future. Um, Lightspeed, yeah, in there and. With the gullwing doors, the DeLorean. You yeah, know. we didn't talk about this, but I, and your company now is Lightspeed Ventures. 
my first electric car, uh, I named Lightspeed. There are only a few electric cars you can name, so really? kind of, that'll give you an idea of what kind of car it was. But wow. I named it Lightspeed wow. uh, back in 2017. No and my way. kids still refer to it as Lightspeed. That's so cool. Well, that <laughs> yeah. yeah, that red car is Lightspeed, and yeah. Yeah, that's in my barn. That's no, that's yeah, that's in the barn. It's, wow. it's going to come here. We We're hope. Gonna, but I hope I have time to go go check out this yeah, this, this, this barn. All right, Solar Warrior, we're going to press pause on James Warden's story there for this part one of the interview. But I do hope you've already queued up part two. I'd love to know, what did you learn so far? Anything surprise you? Anything inspire you? Would you mind sharing those insights with James and I over on LinkedIn? I know I speak on his behalf when I say we are truly eager to hear your thoughts and look forward to the feedback. If you are eager to keep learning, and I know you are, then, my fellow Philomath, may I point you to this show notes over at mysuncast.com. You can find the link for that right in the description of the podcast player you are listening to right now. In the show notes, you'll find links to the articles I researched in prep for this interview with James, including the one from Newsweek and the Tampa Bay Times I referenced in the introduction. There really is so much more to the story, and that's why I hope you'll give part two a listen. In particular, because that's where we really get into the solar part of the story and how it all came about. Make sure you queue it up. Thanks again for taking the time to share with James and I your thoughts whenever you do get a chance. Speaking of gratitude, thank you once again to our sponsors for helping make this content free to you. It definitely is not free to produce such involved content, especially when I get on a plane and fly to remote locations like the museum that you heard James and I broadcast from today. You can learn more about our supporting partners at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also where you can learn how to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week. Remember, you are what you listen to. I hope you'll listen to part two of this episode. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It is half the battle.